I suppose some of you are still counting days, if not most of you. And your retreat actually doesn't end when you go back. It just continues. If you really, really want to benefit from the practice, then you have to make this a lifelong practice. It's a lifelong practice. The practice of meditation, the cultivation, is not a hundred meter dash. It's longer than a marathon. If you take a retreat to be just the only time for you to practice, it's not to say that you can't get any benefit, but the benefit of it would be very little. Relatively, if you were to take it as a time to accelerate your learning and also to apply your learning in your daily life and continue to learn, then you really get the benefit out of it. Regardless of whether we are in this retreat or elsewhere, we are going to meet this person. We meet this person all the time, whether or not you are aware of that. You might be paying more attention to other people, other things, your work, but wherever you go, there this person is. And this person consists of many, many things. Among them are what we call the defilements. But actually the defilements aren't who we are. Just like if you ate something that has some parasites and it gone to the stomach, the parasites don't belong to this body. It's a foreign object. And if you were to get rid of these parasites, this body doesn't become worse off. It becomes better. The same goes for defilements in the mind. When defilements are discarded, the mind doesn't become worse off, it becomes better. So it's not who we are. In fact, it doesn't even belong to us. Like in the uh, simile that's given by my teacher, it's like the weeds in your garden. The weeds don't belong to you, but it's growing in your garden, and therefore you're responsible for it. There's no one else who can be responsible for it. So we have to be. Two years after I became a monk, I came to live with Bhante Agachita. And in the beginning, I was very, very happy to be with him. He felt very much like a father. And I remember at one time, I couldn't help thinking that, well, this is the kind of father that I've been wanting. And so I was very appreciative and we were very close. We could share things because, well, physically we actually live close anyway. So we share a lot of things. He shares his stuff with me, I share my stuff with him but maybe not too deep stuff yet. Relatively, no day-to-day -day kind of thing, any frustrations or whatever we could share. So I enjoyed that relationship. But then, as usual, relationship after you get to know each other for a longer time, then you have bits and bits of disagreements. And retrospectively, I could remember being resentful when he pointed out things about me. Sometimes he doesn't even say something, he just a certain sound, huh. and oh, I felt like there is a sharp knife that got poked inside. Sometimes it goes like something like, uh, hmm, you know, and ouch, it hurt. <laughs> Particularly when he asked me to memorize the Patimokha, there's something that the monks have to memorize, yeah, they do monastic rules. I, I didn't have very good memory at that time, it, there was a, some a physical issue to that too, which has been resolved now. But so I had difficulty memorizing sometimes. The mind sometimes just becomes a bit foggy and I can't remember. And he gets a bit, I don't know whether it's annoyance or disappointment, so he goes, hmm. And that was enough for me to really feel it. 
So the resentment grew, and then also I resented that he paid a lot of attention to building works. At that time, there were lots and lots of buildings, and I felt a bit neglected. <laughs> Fast forward years later, sometimes I find myself going into his office to deliver something or to find out something from him. Then I don't leave immediately. I sort of hang out there a little, look at what he had on the table. Touch those things, flip it about, see what it's all about. Then I ask myself, what the heck am I doing here? <laughs> then, feeling a bit stupid, I left the room. Feeling even more stupid after that. What in the world that I wanted? Gee, I wanted his attention. My goodness, thirty-something-year-old <laughs> monk looking for attention. There was a lot of these things going on, and sometimes as it became, you know, there is this tension. I kind of express my dissatisfaction, and he would also express his dissatisfaction, and tension grew between us. I knew it; he knew it. Just that we didn't talk about it. But it's <laughs> it's just something that we don't talk about. But we knew what was happening, and I knew that he was trying. He was trying to make it better, and I was trying too. But I think he was trying better than I was. <laughs> I wasn't so good at it. Sometimes certain things that he said, and I would feel very, very resentful, and I would retort. Then after that, I feel rather sorry about that, feel guilty, and I put on my robe properly, go into the office, bow down three times, and say "pante." This morning, I think my behavior wasn't very nice, <laughs> so I ask for forgiveness. I said, "Okay, be more mindful next time." Say yes, "pante." I left his office, and next time I repeat. And this just went on. So one day, as I came out from his office after another occasion of saying sorry, I just asked myself, "Hey, what's happening here? What am I missing? I have already been trained with Siado Dejania, and we are encouraged. We are trained to ask why. You know, it's not just enough to know your defilements or all these things that are happening, what you are feeling, and what stuff that's happening in your mind. Not just to know, but to know why. Why they come up." That is the part where we don't normally see. We have our blind spots. So when we ask why, we are actually prompting the mind to look into those areas that we don't normally see. So when I ask myself why, all I could see at that time was guilt, which wasn't the reason why I behaved like that. But at least I saw something. Guilt. Also, okay, that's not necessary. Then it just faded off. But from that point onwards, I was interested. I wanted to know why I was behaving like that. Sometimes it's just so obvious to me that whatever he was doing was relatively minor compared to my reaction. So it, there was a lot of overreaction, which I could not understand. But from that point onwards, I wanted to know. I really, really wanted to know. Sometimes it can be a bit scary trying to know yourself, but I had enough of it. I didn't care. I just wanted to know. So one day, well, before that, one of those issues that we have is about my robe. You see, monks we are supposed to wear robe in a particular way, and although different traditions have their ideas about how low the upper robe should go, and Bandek Agachita has his own based on certain texts. There doesn't seem to be a fixed standard rule about that. There's a different community would adopt different standards depending on which text they trust. So his is four finger breast below the knee, and the way I wear my robe is often 
higher, maybe sometimes up to the knee, which is to him not right. So he would point it out to me and say, Come on, are your ropes too high? And at first, I feel some kind of resentment, particularly when he's pointing it out when there are other monks there who are younger monks. So there's sort of pride. <laughs> and sometimes I didn't solo my pride and said, I think it's okay. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And the idea behind that was he's been nitpicky. So I just kind of pull, pull it a little bit and, okay, <laughs> done with it. So at certain points, he said, maybe we need to take a photo. So everybody line up, take a photo and show me, see, see your rope is so high compared to others. Right? So it grew in you know, all this rope thing. Then I'll be looking at his rope and see whether he's meeting his standards or not. <laughs> <laughs> he's trying various ways and trying this way and that way, taking photo and all that stuff. And sometimes he sees it a bit high and he's saying, Come on, I wear a miniskara. Wow, that one really. <laughs> Various ways, I know I've been trying this way, that way. And eventually he found that the best way was to not talk about me, talk about others, you know. Oh, today your rope very nice, but he never mentioned mine. <laughs> hint, hint, yeah. <laughs> and that, that way seemed to be a bit more effective, actually. <laughs> Anyway, the resentment was there, and then he points out more directly, and then even if verbally I don't say anything, inside just go, and I knew I was just suffering. So one day I got up, this is like walking downhill, we're wearing our ropes to go downhill for arms, and I don't know, maybe it's subconscious that I begin to go down a bit later, so I don't see him, so he goes down first, and I follow behind. So this one day, I felt safe. It was ahead. Then I followed behind, 50 meters behind, safe distance. So at that time, because I felt safe, I was feeling quite relaxed and very aware, Just being aware of these movements and all that, my mental state. It was pretty cool at that time. Then it came to a point of the path where it's deeper and you need to go down this way around the rocks. And it was down there and it was up here. And he turned around and he saw me and he said, Kumara, I rope too high. <laughs> At that moment, there was a coming together of a few factors. One was I was aware, the mind was clear, there was fairly good composure. And also there was an interest already, the interest to know what it's all about, what's all this resentment about. And all this came together and I remembered. As soon as he said that, the feeling arose, and I remember, this was exactly how I felt like when I was young and my father criticized me, particularly in front of others. So, so much the same. It just hit me, boom! Wow! I haven't forgiven my father yet <laughs> over that, you know? And all along I have been projecting that father on this father. I left that father, and then I got another father. So there's no end to this. <laughs> then I understood, wow, there's so much stuff which I'm projecting on my monastic father. In fact, after that, then I realized that there's so many times when Bhante Agachita comes back and then the mind goes, that is back. <laughs> like Papa is back, you know, the ideas just came up, even the words came out. And I thought, wait, wait a minute. And there were t even times when I'm with him, I almost call him dad. There's so much projection. 
So from that point onwards, I really, really saw that all those overreactions has to do with not just what was happening, but most of it was past projections. It's not him, it's actually all the impressions about him and who he is and how he should be and all that. It's just a whole lot of stuff that brought about this reaction. If he's somebody that I didn't know, in fact, if he's a woman, or maybe different situation, then without the projection, that wouldn't be so strong, I believe. So from that point onward, I realized that I need to settle my issue with my father. I'm not done with him yet. <laughs> so it was a journey for me, trying to understand what ideas I had of him, and understanding also my situation with uh, my teacher. And as I began to clear the stuff within me, began to identify what clings I have, and the more I see, the more the mind began to let go. Then naturally, my relationship with Adyakachita, my teacher, became better. I didn't try to improve our relationship. I didn't. It just became better. And he noticed that too, and I told him about it. It was just interesting. I didn't try. In the past, I tried. But no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't. It's just so automatic. I believe you understand that. You can't control it. It's just, boom, it goes. You don't even have a chance. And even if you're aware of it, the power is so strong, it just pushes you anyway. Because we don't understand where it's coming from. Therefore, I need to understand where all these things are coming from. I can't blame my father anymore because, oh, he's gone, he's finished, years, years ago. There's no way I can blame him for that because I'm responsible for it. If I continue to blame somebody for my own weaknesses, then there's no end to it. There's always somebody else's fault. You, you, you are the cause of I think in the 80s, the fad in psychology was to blame your parents. Any issues that you have in your adulthood, you can always trace to your childhood, ah, there, your parents' fault. So you always have somebody to blame. But even if you can trace where it's coming from, you can't blame them. If you want to blame them, then what about where they got their stuff from? Then they blame their parents. Then what about them? Then they go blame their parents and their parents. There's no end to that. But in a way, it's true that these things go from generation to generation. If a parent has been punitive towards the children, then it's very likely that the children also can be quite punitive towards their children. And it goes on and on and on and on. And if the parents being rather cold, emotionally cold to the children, then the children also probably be emotionally cold towards not just only their children, the spouse and all, everybody. And it goes on and on. Or if the parents have been subjugative, trying to control, control, then this can also go on. Sometimes it can go the opposite direction. Instead of control, they, they do the complete opposite. They don't want to control completely. It's total counterattack this thing to overcompensate it. So whatever it is, it can go on from generation to generation. So if you don't want this to continue, don't want to bring this down to your children, then you're the one to start off with. You can't tell the children, look, I've been like this, so you don't be like this. That doesn't make sense. If you want people to change, then where's the example? Where's the example? Here's the example. Oftentimes we tend to think that somebody else needs to change. You need to change, you need to change. You can continue doing that, but that's very suffering. 
It brings a lot of misery for yourself and for them as well. The only person that you can really, really try to change, the only person that you can really save is you. And in fact, this is not something selfish. This is something that's very, very compassionate, very kind. This is the starting point. And this is wonderful, actually. It's really, really wonderful that you have the responsibility, you have the opportunity to break the chain, to not carry this forward. And it's not too late. It's not too late. Some people have told me, they notice how their behavior has contributed to the way their children are. It's not too late. Because when you change, they change. I had my perception of how Bhante Agachita treats me. But when I changed, then suddenly he looked nicer. (laughs) He seemed to be nicer to me somehow. And I can't figure it out. I can't be certain if he actually became nicer or he just simply looked nicer. I can't be certain because in the past, the perception is distorted. There's so much projection there, so I don't really see him. I don't really see him. I see my perception of him. And it's so great to know that I could change. (laughs) And when I change, then people around me seem to change. Well, whether they change or not, don't know, but they seem to change. I'm happy enough about that. So it's possible. It's possible. And I know some people who have undergone such changes too. And they're very, very happy about it. When you change yourself, your world change. Your whole world change. So over here, when we are practicing, we are developing the qualities for this change. We're developing self-confidence. We are developing this persistence in the practice. Having the energy to continue, not giving up. Continue to be aware, to investigate. And then we remember, we remember more and more about how to practice. Remember to practice in the first place. And as we do that, the mind becomes more stable, more composed, collected, and it sees things far more clearly, and it understands. It's because it understands, then you have more confidence in the practice. Besides, when you understand, the mind lets go. It lets go automatically. You don't have to try to let go. When you understand, it just lets go. And you'll be surprised. You'll be really surprised how your behavior changes how you don't react so strongly to things compared to the past. You really surprise yourself. Say, hmm, strange. I don't used to be so calm about such things. You will be very, very surprised and glad, of course. Wow, it's actually possible. <laughs> so we have that opportunity. Not everybody has that opportunity. We have because we encountered the right teachings. And we have that confidence in ourselves and in that teaching to practice and benefit from it. Is it difficult? Well, as usual, if you know how to do it, it's not difficult. If you don't know how to do it, it's difficult. But if you say it's difficult, then it will definitely be difficult for you. So whether or not it's difficult, if you think it's worth it, you'll do it. And actually, it is worth it. I can assure you, it is worth it. All your resentments, your aversions, your obsessions, your sadness, your fears or anxiety, delusion. All those things don't belong to you and all those things can be given up. And you'll be glad when you do. You'll be very, very glad. That's all I have to say. Any question? Bhante, just how you mentioned that unless and until you find out the cause, 
then only you can clear up whatever is inside. We continue to practice mindfulness and awareness until we find out. It will naturally come. If we are diligent enough to be aware all the time, Yeah. it will definitely come out. Uh, definitely, I cannot say that. How deep is your practice? How deep is your practice? Are you practicing correctly? But if you're practicing correctly, then naturally the awareness grows and these things become clearer to you, becomes more apparent to you, you catch it when it happens. So it's about how strong is your foundation. I didn't catch it so many times, it happened so many times, but at that moment, conditions were right. And so when it happened again, I saw, I understood. I was able to catch it at that time. If the conditions weren't right, it wouldn't have happened. That means it has to be the ripening of the conditions. Yes, yes. So what we can do is to cultivate the right conditions. Okay. Yeah, and the right conditions are our faculties, our spiritual faculties. But what if we have a background of the theory, and with the theory to help us get out of this, will that also help? The theories would help you if that helps you to see the actual thing. Like, for example, let's say if you have the good theory that to let go is better, to forgive is better, but that doesn't mean you can let go or forgive. With that idea, with that theory, you actually point the mind to see what exactly that you are clinging on to, and the mind sees clearly there's really, really nothing worth clinging on to. It sees that the clinging is so painful, so unhappy, and it sees it clearly. You're not just touching the surface. You really see the whole thing, then it's possible. Okay, thank you, Bhante. And I was practicing with my teacher. This stuff came up during one of our discussions. One lady was concerned and said, you know, then you mean we need to clear these things? No, wow, how am I going to do this? Not problem, no problem. As you continue practice, opportunities will arise for you to see these things. As the mind becomes clearer and clearer, it becomes obvious to you, these things. And life will bring you opportunity, very unpleasant, wonderful opportunities. <laughs> Question is, are we willing to face them? And of course, are we willing to let go? So that the Nikkama Sankapa, the orientation or the resolution to give up, that determination in mind to give it up, that's necessary. Without that, without that wanting to let go, then you can expect continual grasping. Has everybody has to undergo all these things when they meditate? Or some people don't have to undergo all these things? You mean you're asking for a bypass? No, just curiosity. The way I see it, no, it's not possible. Okay. What we want to clear off are defilements, right? Yeah. And our problems are made of defilement. Yeah. So that's the thing that we need to clear. Okay, thank you. And so our problems becomes our practice. And when you can clear them, you'll be appreciative of your problems. Without which, you wouldn't have done anything. You wouldn't have bothered to practice. Why bother to practice if you don't have problems? Nothing to do. Bosu ah. <laughs> you know? Bante, how we know whether it's working at work or thinking at work? How do you know if wisdom is at work, is it? Yeah, yeah. When we find solutions that comes out of wisdom, there'll be a sense of relief. And with that relief, you feel joy. Joy doesn't necessarily mean 
hee hee ha ha joy, but there is joy. When I remembered what that feeling was about, there was joy. I said, wow, there was joy. It was unpleasant, but at the same time, there was joy. It was a funny thing. So that is not something that I figured out. When I saw that, I realized that it couldn't be possible for me to figure it out. It's because it was so spontaneous. Boom! It just happens. When you try to figure it out, it's not like this. And what comes out from this thinking, you won't feel satisfied. That's kind of like, you know, okay, all right, see, this is where it's all coming from. But um, if it's just pure thinking, there's a sense of unsatisfaction. You don't feel any release. And so it doesn't accompany with joy because the grasping is still just as strong. But don't look down on those things that you see through intellectualizing as well. It has its benefit too. At least you intellectually know, oh, okay, so this is what it's all about. It's helpful too. Don't look down on that. It's still something that's worth knowing. Just that the effect of it is not that great. So, Bhante, you are saying that the unpleasant feeling will still be there, even you feel some kind of release. Yes, is yes, it, it can be. Still can be. be there, but can just be. that is not so. Volatile. Because it may not be complete yet. Okay. Yeah. Do you you notice a certain extent of release, but at the same time, there's also the other part that is yeah, not yeah, released there, yet. Yeah. So, to the extent that there is a release, you feel joy there instead. Yeah, but still going on. How long it need to be going on? <laughs> How long more before the coconut tree bears coconut? Don't know. Okay, investigation of the Dharma. I need clarification on how we know whether it is the thinking or it is an investigation. Okay. Because sometimes it's quite confusing. All right, yeah. right. Okay. Now, Dharma investigation is different compared to intellectual investigation, intellectual analysis in that what you try to investigate or look into are things that are already there. They are already present. It's like in the box there are things and you just open the box and see what's in there. You don't try to figure out what's in the box. You open it up and see that it's all already there. No thinking is involved in seeing those things. You need to think as to how to open the box, yes. How to get there. But the actual seeing itself is not out of intellectualization. So that's the difference. Ante, I have a question to ask. Ante, how do we know that we are trying with right concentration and right effort? Um, we don't use concentration. Because we use this word concentration in Buddhist world for so long that the moment you say samadhi, the word concentration comes up. It's become so widespread that people have taken that to be the only translation. So if you think it's a concentration, then you can have that kind of confusion. Yeah, because when you say concentration, you're already putting effort there, right? The word concentration in English already implies effort. There are actually many, many meanings of the word concentration. Some of those meanings has to do with the mind, as the application of mind or effort into some activity, and you focus. And that I find to be not the meaning for the word samadhi. Earlier on in the retreat, I already explained that samadhi actually means collectedness or composure, to cut the story short. So this collectedness or composure is not something that you can effort out. 
<laughs> I don't know how else to, to put it. It's not something that you can will. You can will composure, you can will collectedness. But if you do the right thing, then you have this collectedness. It's something like, say, a pool of water that is disturbed. This is a forest pool of water. The mud flies out. And how so that this water can become still again and the mud settle? Just don't disturb it. So the effort, if you use the word effort, the effort is to not make effort. <laughs> don't do anything to it. Let the mind settle. But there could be stuff in the water. Maybe there's animal in the water that's still disturbing the water. So what you need to do to make the water settle is to take this animal and throw this fellow out. But the settling of the water itself is not your job. It happens naturally, so long as nothing is disturbing it. So what we want to understand is what disturbs the water. We want to understand that. We want to be able to catch or, or grasp with wisdom these things. Okay? Yes, I do it means that it doesn't mean that you have meditated for so long you have wisdom, right? Yes. If you have meditated for a long, long time the wrong way, doesn't mean anything actually. But but still, if you have meditated for a long time and you have trained yourself in being aware, the mind has actually registered a lot of data. And with this data, if with the right understanding, it can easily turn, it can very quickly turn if the mind is open to this new information as to how to practice in the right way. And all the old practice, all the data that has been collected would come into and therefore a person can practice very easily. The mind can pick it up easily. I noticed this for some yogis. But the mind needs to be willing, the mind needs to be open for that to happen. Now, some of you took a long, long time but eventually got to it. <laughs> Ante, the garbage that we collected all of those past lifetimes and this lifetime, during this lifetime, we learn about Dharma, we start practicing, and by our last breath this lifetime, if we can't clear off whatever garbage is still inside, at that last breath moment, what shall we do if we feel that we still have those things inside? Be happy for those that you have cleared. Oh, no, I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> because the last thought moment is very important, right, Pante? The last thought moment depends on how you live. Don't give it too much importance. You can't manage your last thought moment. You can't manage it. Okay. You can just do the right thing now. Alright. That will settle itself. It will depend on how you live. Okay. Thank you. Bhante, you taught us that we should look at the defilements, greed, dosa and also moha right. as not self. But I'm not very sure how to do it. Can you give some explanation? Okay. Let's take anger. It's always easier to take anger because it's gross. Let's say you see something and you get angry. Sometimes you don't have to, have to see it with your eyes. You just think about it. <laughs> anger arises. You feel it physically. There's a physical manifestation of the anger. And at that time, remember to check whether or not you're taking this phenomena as you. Does the mind think, I am angry, or does the mind think, there is anger? You can say that there is anger in the mind, or there is anger in me, but it's like saying that that anger is not me. 
how does the mind regard the anger? Does it regard it as me, I am angry, or there is anger? So what we do when we talk about applying this right perception is remind ourselves, anger is anger. Anger is not me. But of course, in the beginning, there may be a lot of identification to the anger. Perhaps there's been so long of identification to it. Right? But still, try to remind yourself. Intellectually, we can understand by just considering that you didn't ask for the anger to come, right? It didn't even ask for your permission. When it happens, it happens. Is it going to rain? It might. I don't know. Or it's not going to rain? Do you get to decide? So it's just nature. Same goes with anger. You didn't get to choose. When it happens, it happens. So we regard them in the same way. Well, of course, identification may be still there at the same time. And if we can see it, this identification is also something that we cannot control. It identifies, and we can take that as just a phenomena as well. All right, I think that's enough for today.